Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Nicholas Meyer, whose latest book is The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, adapted from the journals of John H. Watson, M.D., which means it's a Sherlock Holmes book, he is the author of 7% Solution, The West End Horror, The Canary Trainer. Those are three Sherlock Holmes books, pastiches. There's three other novels, two books of nonfiction, including a memoir, View from the Bridge, which I interviewed you about a decade or more, somewhere in there ago. Yes. Also a director of Wrath of Khan, The Undiscovered Country, also Time After Time, TV film The Day After, worked on an adaptation of Theodore Roosevelt's biography with Martin Scorsese. Is that right? It was right. Also was in the writer's room, I guess, of Star Trek Discovery. First year I was First year, which we'll get to. Also wrote the pilot, I understand, of the TV series Time After Time. I did not. I was totally excluded from anything to do with the television alleged series. If you tried to watch it, you'd understand why. (laughs) What I did do is I'm a co-creator of Medici's, Master of Florence, Masters of Florence, and I worked on the first season. Um, And at that time, the company that makes it is an Italian company called Lux Vidae. If you know your Latin, that means I see the light. And uh, Lux Vitae is a, um, they make sort of costume period stuff. So they got involved with the Medici and my partner and and me, Frank Spotnitz, who also uh, created The Man in the High Castle. And the folks at Lux Vitae were content to fly over an American and put up with him and put him up for the first season. But afterwards, they said, oh, we now figure out how you do this. Oh, you can go home now. (laughs) It's on Netflix. Yeah. Going into its third season. And I did the two-night Houdini with Adrian Brody for the History Channel. Well, before we get into these nooks and crannies, including Star Trek Discovery, uh, which is your return to the Star Trek universe, Let's talk about the adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. First, what brought you back into writing another Sherlock Holmes book? Well, that's a question that's sort of hard to um, pin down in terms of a response. The idea came first. I have always been interested in forgeries. I have a little library of forgery, whether it's art forgery or literary forgery or musical forgery. I'm fascinated by it, possibly because technically, I suppose, I'm a forger myself because I forged these Watson manuscripts, which are in turn 
forgeries of by Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, so I, I come by my interest in forgery naturally. It isn't very long if you study forgery before you come across the most vicious and destructive forgery probably of all time, which is something that some of your readers will, uh, listeners will know and, and others won't, called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. And this uh, document, which is about 300 pages, was first uh, put out on an unsuspecting world in around 1903 by, these, by the Tsar's uh, secret police, Theokrana. And what the Protocols of the Elders of Zion purports to be are the minutes of a secret meeting of Jews plotting to take over the world. And although the protocols are sort of ridiculous and were very early on debunked, um, there are, unsurprisingly, many quarters of the world to this day um, which uh, circulate them, disseminate them as being uh, truthful. And uh, among other things, they're taught in textbooks uh, in many places in the Middle East. Some places in Louisiana have also been documented. Vladimir Putin has quoted the protocols. In the 1920s, Henry Ford published the complete protocols of the elders of Zion in his newspaper, the Dearborn Independent. And this is not a small paper. It doesn't exist anymore. But at the time he published these uh, notorious and rather nauseating pages, it had the largest circulation of any newspaper in the United States except the Daily News. So it was not a small thing that he did in circulating this libel. I don't know what else to call it. And so I, I came across the protocols. If you Google them, you'll come across them. You just type it in. And seeing as they came about in about 1903, I don't know where the idea popped into my head, but it was a long time ago. It's, it's at least 10 years ago. What if Sherlock Holmes was uh, put up against the protocols of the learned elders of Zion? And could I you know, they say, set a thief to catch a thief. <laughs> Could I, as a forger, set out and catch a forger, um, maybe approaching this from a more oblique angle than another straight-on refutation of this thing that simply refuses to die? So uh, after thinking about it for 10 years, I finally got around to it. When you started getting around to it, was it hard to get back into Sherlock, into Watson's voice? Was that kind of like the easiest thing? You know, I think Watson's voice is practically my voice by this point. It's just I started reading the Sherlock Holmes stories when my father gave me a one-volume complete edition. I, I must have been about 11. And I'm not a very fast reader. In fact, I'm a very slow reader. But I – those – my recollection – is that it more or less took over my life. There are 60 stories, 56 short ones and four novellas. And they're not, you know, it's a little confusing because the first one, A Study in Scarlet, which is how Sherlock meets Watson, when you're halfway through the story, remember, I'm 11 years old, you turn the page 
and suddenly you're in Utah. I thought, what? What? Uh, what? This is. I didn't even know what a printer's mistake was, but I I was convinced I'd experienced one that they've glued the two wrong books together because there's no transition, there's no explanation. I'm in Utah with Mormons. And then it all sort of comes full circle. I, I mean, I just kept reading. I didn't know what else to do. So that was my first rather memorable. And Sherlock Holmes got me interested in many things. It got me interested in Mormons when I drove across country from New York to seek my fortune in California in the movie business. I had to go to Salt Lake. I had to see the Mormons because I had read a study in Scarlet. And later on, The Sign of the Four, I got interested in the Indian Mutiny of 1857. Later on, I got interested in cocaine because the guy was shooting up. And I thought, what is that? Or you read about the mafia. You read about interracial marriage. It's like a lay Bible. It covers everything, those 60 stories. Uh, what brought you to 7% Solution? By that point, I mean, a number of people had been writing Holmes pastiches ever since Doyle died. Yes, life's darkest hours <laughs> when you finish the last <laughs> book and you go, ah, now what? I moved out to California in 1971, and I stumbled on to what is called the writings about the writings. And this is Sherlock Holmes and women, Sherlock Holmes and music, Sherlock Holmes and Japanese uh, baritsu fighting and all kind of arcane stuff. No one was reading this stuff except me. And I read a, an essay that my father gave. Well, I should back up. My father was a psychoanalyst. And people would say to me in high school, oh, your old man's a shrink. Is he a Freudian? And I didn't know. So I said, Pop, are you a Freudian? And he said, it's a silly question. And I said, why, why is it a silly question? And he said, because it is no more possible to discuss the history of psychoanalysis and not start with Freud than it is to discuss the history of the Western discovery of America and not start with Columbus or the Vikings, take your pick. But to suppose that nothing has happened since the Vikings is to be pretty doctrinaire, pretty rigid. When a patient comes to see me, he went on, I look at what they're wearing. I'm interested if they're on time. I listen to what they're saying. I listen to how they say it. I am especially curious as to what they are not saying. I am, in short, searching for clues from them as to why they're not happy. And I said, gee, that, that sounds like detective work, what you do. And he said, well, it is kind of like detective work. And then I, a little light bulb went off in my head. Maybe I'm 13 or 14. And I thought, gee, I wonder how much Arthur Conan Doyle knew about the life and writing of Sigmund Freud. And almost the first thing you realize is, oh, they're both doctors. Oh, and they died in the same city within nine years of each other. And then... Holmes is a cocaine addict, and Freud, for a time, was also a cocaine addict. And as I say, I think very slowly. I read very slowly. If I, if I talk fast, I'm, I'm giving you a tape. But over a bunch of years, I kept adding to my Freud-Holmes thing, and at first I thought it was going to be nonfiction, and then I thought, no, I don't know how to do that. I'm a storyteller, or I'm nothing. And so then it was Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud, 
and an exchange of values takes place. Freud helps Holmes get off his coke habit, and in return, Holmes exposes Freud to those methods of deductive reasoning that set Freud on the path to psychoanalysis. <laughs> and that's how, and that's how a seven percent solution started. Long-winded answer, but <laughs> uh, well, uh, you wound up writing two more uh, pastiches, and at the same time, you were also working in the Star Trek universe. The one thing they have in common is what's kind of called the canon, meaning everything has to fit within the universe that's already been pre-established. Yes, correct. Look, going back to Adventure of Peculiar Protocols, how worried were you about that? Well, there are, uh, as you say, established chronologies. By the way, all the Holmes chronologies don't necessarily agree. Uh, many years ago, I, uh, a man named William Baring Gould did the first annotated Sherlock Holmes stories. And he established what he thought was his chronology, and I more or less accepted that at face value. Now, uh, another annotator, who happens to be a rather, very close friend, uh, Les Klinger, uh, whose endorsement, I believe, is on the back of the book, he made a different annotated two-volume thing. And uh, he's also annotated H.P. Lovecraft and Mary Shelley and a whole... He's in the annotating business. So there are arguments. But uh, I was satisfied that 1905 was a more or less empty year. There are other vacancies in the Holmes chronology. The principal vacancy, is, as you and your listeners may be aware, is that when uh, Holmes and Moriarty... Uh, fall to their deaths, presumably over the Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland, Holmes goes on the run. In real time, it's three years. In in Doyle's life, it's 10 years because it took him that long to get back to writing any more of them. And then Holmes says, and here's where I was during those years when I was on the run from the professor's minions. And he says, you know, I was in Tibet. I was doing this. I was doing that. And of course, that's a Field day, and the Canary Trainer, which you mentioned, which was my third Holmes book that I wrote, but that's actually a more or less a sequel in chronological order to the Seven Percent Solution, where Holmes, having kicked his drug habit courtesy of Freud, uh, doesn't feel like going back to London just yet, and begins his own hiatus. Uh, you know, depending on whose version of the disappearance you subscribe to, and he winds up going to Paris on his own, and he's a violinist, and he gives violin lessons, and he learns there's a vacancy at the Paris Opera where mysterious things have been happening, and a violinist quits in terror, and Holmes takes his place, and wouldn't you know the great love of his life, the opera soprano Irene Adler is performing at the Paris Opera. Holmes does his best to conceal his presence in the pit. But when she finally sort of surprises him, and he says, how did you, you know, know I was down there? And she says, "And because I'm so proud of this bit. I just love it. She says, well, would you like to know what opera divas do on their days off? Because this diva goes to art galleries. 
and there I saw the drawings of Monsieur Degas of the opera and the orchestra. Imagine my surprise when I saw your face in the first violin section. That's how she knew <laughs> that he was there. And she says, you'll help me solve this phantom of the opera business or I'll expose your incognito. So that's just kind of a sequel to it. And then the idea of placing this in 1905. Does Doyle talk about the post Moriarty years specifically. Do we know what years those were? Or is that really vague? It's not vague. People have, as I say, pieced this all together, and yeah. they may disagree in some particulars, but the clues are sort of scanty. You know, at some point, Holmes is retired, but we know he was still active as of 1914 because he had been doing undercover work against the German spy von Bork for two years in America under the name Altmont. And those are Doyle those stories. Are, that's Doyle's story. His, his, I think that's his last bow. And after which, he retired to Sussex to keep bees, as we all know. He was a beekeeper. Don't ask because I, you know, Doyle just dreamt this stuff up and just spewed <laughs> so, it out. One day he discovered, he said, gee, we, we, we need to mix this up a little bit. Let's give him an older brother. And suddenly Mycroft, we haven't heard about him for, you know, any of the other stories. And suddenly there he is. <laughs> so in the Holmes canon, where does 1905 fit? The superficial answer is quite easily. I don't think there are stories that date in this period. And I checked with Les Klinger when I wrote the manuscript. I said, am I good here? And he said, oh yeah, you're in the clear. So I put together certain elements. One is we know that Watson remarried after the death of his first wife, Mary Morstan. But we never really know to whom he was married. It's another one of Doyle's throwaway lines. So I decided to give him a second wife. He's resumed his practice, which uh, there are, are other references to the fact that he's resumed his medical practice. So I, I gave him that. And because the protocols were disseminated or discovered or released or forged or whatever you want, in 1903, I thought I was sort of, I could sort of be flexible chronologically and say 1905 because it worked better for other reasons because the first Russian revolution right. took place in 1905. Uh, the book takes us to Odessa and Budapest. Did you go to either of those places? Have you been to either of those places? I've been to Budapest because we filmed the Houdini miniseries in Budapest. I have never been to Odessa, but I keep watching the battleship Potemkin <laughs> and I go to Google Earth. <laughs> You don't have to do research anymore. You don't have to go to college. All you do is, is type in what you want to know, and there's pictures of it. There's everything. Uh, there's a character, a major character named Anna Strunsky, which when I saw the name, my eyes picked up because actually I interviewed her nephew. I'm getting a look. This is me with my jaw falling out. That's amazing. Tell me about this, please. Anna Strunsky had a brother and I don't remember his name. Brother had uh, kids, one of whom was Lenore and the other of whom was English. Lenore married Ira Gershwin. And English in the 1920s hung out with George Gershwin. So when I was doing some work on a Gershwin documentary, I interviewed English. I didn't know of Anna Strunsky, who she was, but she was pretty famous in her day. And she, she and her husband established the NAACP. 
With William Du Bois, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all of them together. And, and, and it was founded in their Central Park West apartment. What brought you to bring Anna Strunsky into the story? There's a professor named Stephen Zipperstein, Zipperstein, who is at Stanford. And he wrote a nonfiction book called Pogrom. And Pogrom is about the massacre at this town that Holmes goes to. Kishinev or Kishinev. And I think it was in that book that I came across Anna Strunsky and Edward English Walling as a couple. And I thought, oh, and the year is right. 1905, they were there. So that's how it happened. Once you brought her in, you decided to make her a major character. You bet. And put them on the Orient Express. Did you do any research beyond what we already knew or just typing Orient Express? I have a book about the Orient Express, a a beautiful sort of coffee table book with photographs of all the cars and the decor, which varied, and the architecture of the cars from car to car. They were very, very different. I love trains. I mean, there's a train in the 7% solution as well. And I think trains are really cool and they're dramatic and romantic and they're fun. And I guess I would like to take the Orient Express if I could ever afford a ticket. I I don't know if it exists anymore. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure the 1% rides around. There's (laughs) there's that thing in India, the palace on wheels, and they serve amazing stuff. Well, as we know... um, your carbon imprint jumps when you take a plane, and people are beginning to start thinking, oh, trains. Trains are the greatest form of mass transit ever devised. They're lots of fun. Nicholas Meyer, when you're putting a story together, whether it be a novel or a screenplay, is there a difference in the early stages before you actually sit down and write, and in the writing itself and how a story develops. Is there any difference between those two? Well, the terror is the same, I can tell you, that the amount of anxiety before you are ready to start, you know, what some people think of as typing. Once I get going, I feel better. They are different in the following way, that when you are writing a screenplay, you are typically working for others, Uh, You have other people to whom you must answer, whether they're producers or directors or stars or whoever's writing the checks. And you have to try to sort of negotiate to save what you think is important. There are different kinds of notes you get when you write a screenplay. There's four categories. There's the I must, I can, I can't, I won't. The first one is like, this idea is so good that I'm kicking myself that I didn't have it and I won't sleep until I fix it. The next one, the I can note is, well, all right, I don't know why this is important, but it's no skin off my nose. I'll do it. Then there's the third note, the I can't, which is I also sometimes call the I don't have the footage note, uh, which is where you say, "I I don't know how to do what you're you're asking. It's as if in a cutting room you would say, don't you have a close-up of the girl here? And you go, I don't. You know, I, I can't do it. And the last one is the over my dead body note. Um, but there's none of that when you're writing for yourself. 
You're only limited by your own ability and your own uh, intuitions and for better or worse. And sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. But when I wrote this book, when I wrote The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, tongue twister, I felt like I'd been let out of school. And yes, there's a certain surreal feeling when you start writing something and you go, you think anybody's going to pay any attention to this? Is is it, you know, or are you just sort of, you know, jerking off here by yourself or whatever? And and then I just get going. And once you're in it, once you're swimming the English Channel, you, you just keep going, you know. And there were a lot of stumbles and mistakes and the beauty of computers in aiding writing. I can't imagine at this point how... You know, Mozart wrote anything without how, how do you go back and change things? And I wasn't a perfectionist before because we're talking about scissors and scotch tape and whiteout and all these things. And I say, like, oh, the hell with it. That comma can just stay because I'm damned if I'm cutting this piece of paper up again. No more. Now we've got computers. I can be a perfectionist. What's curious about that is that if you look through books these days, there's actually more typos than there were 20 years ago. At but 30. there's also fewer editors, and that's a, that's a whole other topic, which is I was simply shocked, shocked, because I, I edit, you know, as a favor to friends who've written books or screenplays. I read them and I say this, this, and this. And I was so startled. I have a friend, a very nice woman, who wrote a novel and asked me to take a look at it. And, you know, it was already in galleys or something. I can't remember. And I thought, no one at this publishing house has read this book. No one. And what was so bizarre about it is we're not talking about characterization. We're not talking about style. We're talking about on page 17, she's drinking tea. And on page 18, she's drinking coffee, and nobody is minding the store. It's very upsetting. It's very bizarre. You have to hire an editor now. You have to pay somebody. Uh, and yes, not only are there more typos, but as somebody I know in the publishing business said to me, since computers, all the books have gotten longer. And I love Doris Kearns Goodwin. I loved A Team of Rivals. I thought that was a great book. But it's also 60 pages too long with mini biographies of every one of Lincoln's cabinet, which is a lot of research, but they all come across in the rest of the book without any of that. I always read the books before interviews, and it gets to be torture because the books are all too long. Except this one. Did you ever read Edgar Allan Poe, The Philosophy of Composition? No, I have not. Oh, it's a great, it's a, this is a fantastic little essay he wrote to say how he wrote The Raven. And he, he, he said that he thinks all works of art should be digestible at a single sitting, which is why he never wrote novels. And he faults Milton's Paradise Lost because it's, can't, you can't do it at one sitting. So he said his first consideration when he decided he wanted to write a poem was the length. He said, 100 lines. Raven is 108. Next, what is the subject of the poem? Beauty. He says, that's the proper province of poetry is the beautiful. Everything else is prose. Next, 
what should be the subject of the poem? You know, what, what kind of beauty? What's the greatest kind of beauty? Sad beauty. What is the saddest beauty I could think of? Death. Whose death is the saddest I could imagine? The death of a maiden. I now had a 100-line poem about the death of a maiden. Next. Um, I wanted to have a refrain, something that was easily, you know, and what is the saddest word I could think of? Nevermore. I now have a 100-line poem about the death of a maiden and the answer nevermore, which, by the way, if that keeps going, you know, it doesn't sound really human. Maybe it's a parrot. And then he thought, no, 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 a parrot is a comical bird. And then he remembered ravens and so on and so on and so forth. And this is his spiel. But basically, he thinks that a work of art should be digestible at a single sitting. So my book is digestible. It's not a single sitting. but Well, what I noticed is that frequently when I talk to writers, I say, you know, how did you know you reached the end? And they say, because I reached the end. Because something tells me this kind of an instinctive feel. But now we get padding. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, Medici's is a Netflix series. Netflix series tend to be 13 episodes, every single one of them, every single Netflix series, as opposed to Amazon, which are 10 or 8. But all of these, they're all too long, and they all have these montages that don't need to be there. And I'm thinking, what about the old days when people cared about pacing? I can't intelligently speak to the issue of of padding and how many episodes. I do know that movies are two, two and a half hours long typically. But what, what episodic uh, streaming television allows is a more novelistic, um, a, a leisurely, and you, I, it's not necessarily padding, but more character detail, a lot of stuff. And the Russians, there's a Russian television series now called We Are Better Than or Better Than Us is the name. Sci-fi, unbelievable stuff. But I think it's 16 episodes. It's a lot. But it certainly is amazing, Better Than Us. I think it's, it's either in, uh, HBO, Netflix, Amazon, one of those behemoths. Nicholas Meyer, Star Trek Discovery, how did you get involved? What was your input and then you left after the first season. What happened? Well, when my agent, Alan Gasmer, heard that they were gearing up for this, he contacted what we call the powers that be uh, and said, you know, you guys should have Nick as part of the writing team. And I met a man named Brian Fuller who was running the show. And he hired me. He was a very nice man. And I worked on it for this first year, and I, uh, ultimately I was assigned to write the second episode. I hadn't really been, with the exception of the Medicis in, the, in England, in the writer's room of a television show. So I really didn't have anything to compare it to in terms of how this was supposed to work. But increasingly, I became concerned because we didn't seem to be turning out any scripts. You know, I don't wish to be indiscreet, and I shouldn't be. But I can tell you that uh, people came and went on the show. 
showrunners and and, and it, it was like uh, many new enterprises had a sort of shaky maiden voyage. It's not like we hit an iceberg, but I think we dodged a few in the creation of the television series. Then new people were brought in and there was turnover and I was part of the turnover. Last time I interviewed you, the first J.J. Abrams movie had come out and you complained that it veered away from what Roddenberry was actually trying to do, which is have something deeper than just an adventure story. I don't know if that's your feeling today, but when looking at Discovery, was that in the back of your mind at all? I don't think it was. I know J.J. very well. I used to read J.J. bedtime stories. That's how long I, and, and I did the Houdini uh, miniseries with his dad, with Jerry Abrams, who's been a friend of mine since 1973. And in fact, Small World Department, I bumped into J.J., who's a lovely man, by the way, in the Fox Commissary, I don't know, 15 years ago. I bump into him from time to time, but he came up to me and he said, do you remember what you gave me for my bar mitzvah? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, you gave me the annotated Sherlock Holmes, which my son is reading now. So it's the gift that kept on giving. Sherlock Holmes is the gateway drug. Anyway, I, no, I wasn't thinking about him when I was involved in, in this television series. I guess I was excited and ultimately sort of bewildered by how television works and the fact that you know, it's sort of writing by committee. Did the arc of the story, which involves the Captain Lorca, was that at the beginning? I mean, were you part of that or were you just more mapping things out? Not to give away those who haven't seen it, but the ending is a huge switch on who Lorca is. I'm not competent to really say for various reasons, including spoilers and stuff, I just know that he was part of the first, and you know I, I don't know that I've watched the part with the big switch, so I, I can't speak to that. You stopped watching it. Well, I was never really watching it. I was just working on it. It's like saying, do you read your own books? And I go, no, I can't get through them. It's funny about this whole thing about sort of seeing one's own. I've talked to directors about do you like watching your own movies, and but most of the time, not so much. Uh, all you see is, oh, I didn't get that shot. I didn't film this correctly. I knew, not well, but I knew Alexander McKendrick. I can't remember whether we were talking about Sweet Smell of Success or The Man in the White Suit or whatever. And he, he had uh, emphysema at the time I knew him. And he would say things like, <coughs> well, that's another one I screwed up. <coughs> he, that's the way he would talk. And he, uh, he was talking about masterpieces. And yet they weren't masterpieces to him. How do you feel about your own work as a director? Can you ever go back and look? Because then it might go, oh, damn, I missed that. Oh, I went through that phase years ago. Let me put it this way. I didn't direct The 7% Solution. I wrote the screenplay. Herb Ross directed it. And while I thought there were many uh, really terrific things in the, in the movie, I was also very aware of my own shortcomings as a screenwriter. I became a much better screenwriter when I started to direct. And I say this notwithstanding 
what people will say, but your screenplay was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, yeah, but I still could see all the things I did wrong. And over time, a sort of calcified conviction became mine that the movie was not good or not very good. And then about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I found myself in an auditorium with a whole bunch of people watching a brand new print of the movie, which I had not seen in years. And I hadn't intended to stay. I was supposed to introduce it and then go someplace. But as it happened, there was no place to go. I was on a college campus in February. It was snowing outside, and there was no coffee shop. So I sat and watched, and I was amazed at how good this movie was, simply amazed. You know what Hamlet says, nothing, there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Is it, is it different than, say, watching a film you directed and worked on the editing on? Well, the th I watched time after time, and I can see all the things I've done wrong. It was the first movie I ever directed. I can see all the errors that I made, and yet it is very evident even to me that this is a wonderful movie of enormous charm and cleverness, and it holds up very well. And the three Star Trek films? Well, you only directed two of them. So. I directed two and six. You know, when I came on to Star Trek, I didn't know anything about Star Trek. I'd never seen it. I'd, I, you know, when I was a kid and it was on TV, it looked like a lot of people running around in Dr. Denton's, and I, I just dialed it. I missed everything that was important about it. I miss the interracial uh, and international characters. I, I, I miss the, the, all the analogies, all the metaphors. So I sort of struck off in my own direction when I did Star Trek II. I said, okay, this is Captain Horatio Hornblower in outer space. That's what this is. This is a submarine movie. There's a movie I love called The Enemy Below with Robert Mitchum and Kurt Juergens, directed by Dick Powell, of all people. And that was my model. The best thing I can say about the things that I've done or the best of them, not all of them, but the best of them, is they seemed like they were built to last. With all their faults and flaws, they hold up. Well, that's what I noticed in looking on IMDb. I mean, there were a couple I didn't recognize, but most of them are pretty well-known works, whether it be— There are a couple of screamers in there. But... Yeah, yeah, but, but, you know, time after time, the Star Trek films, Prince of Egypt, of all things. Yeah, my animated movie. <laughs> At the beginning of the interview, I mentioned an adaptation of Theodore Roosevelt's biography with Scorsese. Obviously, that never happened. It didn't. It's an awfully good script, one of my best. But I think it's fair to say, at least it's fair of me to say, that my best screenplays have never been made into movies. It was called The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, and I got to write it for Scorsese, and, and we had a fine time. I did everything. I went to the Badlands. I rode horseback with cattle. I went to Cuba. I was in Daiquiri Beach. I went up San Juan Hill. I went to his estate in, in uh, Sagamore, Long Island, and his house on 23rd Street. I did everything, and I wrote a, a good script, but it didn't get made. Did it not get made because Scorsese had other issues? Did it not get made because nobody wanted to finance it? Do you know? Well, Paramount financed the screenplay. I'd I don't know why it didn't get made, and you probably never will. There's an enormous reluctance for people to sit down and say, look, 
you know, Marty had one version of what was going on. Maybe that was the real one, but it would probably be indelicate to specify it. I just had to live with it, which is too bad because it's these things are two years of your life to write something like that. How many screenplays that you say are your best that have never been produced? Just do you know? Do you have a number? Oh, I'll say eight. I wrote Arthur Conan Doyle's medieval swashbuckler, the the best swashbuckler of all, The White Company, and that never got made. Do you ever plan to direct another movie? Well, I ain't a kid anymore. Um, I know I sound like a kid. It takes a lot of energy to do it. Uh, It would have to be something I could really sort of get my arms around. Uh, But sure, I'd love to do it again. As Orson Welles said, it's the biggest set of electric trains any kid was ever given to play with. Which movie was the most fun to make? Probably it's a toss-up between uh, Time After Time and The Wrath of Khan. Time After Time was enormously fun because I had no idea what I was doing. I directed stage plays, I directed radio plays, but I never directed a movie. And Herb Jaffe and his son Steve saw to it that there was a red carpet constantly being unfurled with every step I took. And it was wonderful fun. I made all kind of mistakes, but I was having the time of my life. That was enormous fun. And I was watching Malcolm and and Mary uh, Steenburgen, and they were falling in love in front of me. I thought, you're a really good director. I had no, <laughs> I had no idea what was really going on. <laughs> And and the Star Trek one was fun, too, then. Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. It was fun because, among other things, Paramount was in such uh, disarray at the time, and they were so busy with other things that they paid no attention to me, whatever. And I really sort of got to do all the things that I wanted to do with it. It was a lot of fun. That's what was so great about The Wire. Apparently, HBO had nothing else, so they said... They just left the people to do what they wanted. And I guess and, that's and you when get it's brilliance. the most fun. Yeah. And arguably when you get some really good results. Nicholas Meyer, what are you working on now? Well, I just finished the second draft of a screenplay for a couple of producers who've raised a good deal of money. It's a big action adventure film, which is a true story. But in the best tradition of the guns of Navarone, it's a popcorn-chomping thrill ride in it. And the fact that it's true really, I think, adds a special zest or zing to it. That's it? That's at the moment. I'm touring with, with the adventure of the peculiar protocols, say the name of the book. Uh, <laughs> did you pick that title? I did, yeah. I, I couldn't decide whether it was the case of the peculiar protocols or the adventure of the peculiar protocols. And I said, oh, it's nicely alliterative. I didn't know it was unpronounceable because that hadn't occurred to me. Um, Do you have uh, in the back of your mind any more Sherlock Holmes? Funnily enough, for a person who hasn't written one in 26 years, my agent suggested something. And I thought, well, now that is interesting. But I haven't had time to get around to it yet. You've been listening to an interview with Nicholas Meyer, whose latest novel, which is Sherlock Holmes' novel, is The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. The Medicis, which you worked on, is on Netflix. It is, season three. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. 
You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>